Thank you, Bill and Barbara. Do you have everything tonight? Jesus is the way. We are grateful that he is our way. Grateful to get to worship. What a remarkable day it's been. What a great day of fellowship together. And it's good to come together and open God's word again tonight. I wonder if your children ever ask you in that simple one-word question, what? What do you want from me? Just like that, what? All emotional and wrapped up, what do you want from me? I remember times like that in my relationship with my dad. Um, In hindsight, as he grew older and wiser, at least in my estimation, I came to understand what he wanted. And I remember growing up, some of my happiest memories were walking with my dad. He uh, loved to walk, and we lived in Germany for a season, and they had folks marches there where the people would walk, and we sort of created our own. We lived in a little German village called Schrobach, and there was a big hill. In fact, I looked it up on Google Earth the other day, and it's every bit as long as I remember it being, uh, straight up this hill, and we would walk up that hill with our basset hound, George, and uh, we would walk over the bridges, on country roads and forests of Germany, and I remember catching little frogs and talking about our ancestor Pocahontas, and uh, I just remember that's, and as I look back on it, I think that's what dad wanted. He wanted us to walk with him, to talk about getting a, a good education, to talk about cars, which was his favorite subject. And it may be from time to time that we look up at God and we say, what do you want from me? God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do next? What about this crucial decision in my life? And I think the simplest answer to discovering the will of God, to discovering what he wants from us, is summarized in the words of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where he says, in effect, what God wants from us is that we would walk with him. Let's look at what God wants. And if you will, open your Bibles with me to the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and let's hear the word of the Lord together tonight. Let's stand together as we read God's word. We've been in this series. We've made it all the way to Micah. As I look at my Bible, we've come a long, long way, and we've studied so many of the books one at a time on Sunday nights, and now Micah, next week, Nahum, and then because of uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, we'll have a couple of weeks out there, and then we'll come back. We'll come back strong with Habakkuk. Hear the word of the Lord in Micah tonight, chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Micah is short for Micaiah, 
It means one who resembles the Lord. Hard to know what his parents were thinking when they named him. Uh, Lots of us have names that have no particular theological significance to our parents, but one gets the sense in the days that Micah lived in, days where, where Jotham and Ahaz were kings, and ultimately Hezekiah was a king late in his life, that Micah may have been from one of those few families of Israel who understood the purposes of God, who got the bigger picture of what God intended for their lives. It could be that Micah's parents were highly intentional in naming him that. Micah preached in that same period of time, if you want to put him on a chronological frame of reference, with Isaiah and Hosea and Amos in the 8th century B.C., in the 700s B.C., He preached and he wrote and he preached to the southern kingdom like Isaiah did, like Hosea did. And his words are a reminder that God had a great purpose for his people. But you don't have to read far in the book of Micah to find out that they are far afield from the purpose of God. And it's really at every stratum of society. If you think about it, when you look at them, it's in their leadership, it's in their spiritual leadership, it's in their relationships with each other, and it's in their relationship with their spiritual leaders as well. And Micah comes in a time when the preachers, he says, are mostly preaching for profit. If somebody tells them, I'll pay you, they will go and say whatever that person wants them to say. And when he and others preach against sin, they say to them, don't preach against sin. It was a tough time to be one who really spoke for God. Because there were many who claimed to speak for God. But Micah was one who resembled the Lord. And he comes to this sort of crescendo as we come to chapter 6 where he begins to ask the question, what does God really want from us? And he answers with, with the traditional answer that those who misunderstood Judaism would have answered. Well, we just need to worship more. We need to be more regular in our sacrifices. We would say, we need to go to church more often. But in truth, God wanted more than that. Though, though going to church is um, a means to an end, it's not the end in itself. It's a means to the end of walking with God. And what Micah says is, I know that you think if you offered God some dramatic sacrifice, if you offered Him rivers of oil and ten thousands of rams, or, or ultimately you offered even your own firstborn child, the way the pagan nations around them did, that somehow that would say to God, I really love you. But God says, what I really want is for you to walk with me. And here's how you know whether or not you're walking with me. Do you do justice? Do you love mercy? Do you walk in humility with your God? This is what God ultimately wanted from his people. If you look back in the Old Testament, you discover that it was always that way, that God creates Adam and Eve. He has fellowship with them in the garden. They walk with him. They talk with him. And then there comes that day when they sin and they are dismissed from the garden and fellowship with God is cut off. But every once in a while, in Hebrew history, somebody would get it right. And you you would see a person rise like Enoch who wanted to walk with God, and he was not, because God 
took him. We read in the book of Genesis, Noah was one who walked with God as well. Abraham walked with God. There were individuals. But by the time that Micah lives, the uh, faithfulness of David is just a distant memory. And what's left behind are spiritual vestiges. And they're still very religious people, but it's not changing them. As my religion professor, my freshman year at Baylor, used to say, it's not how high you jump, it's not how loud you shout, but it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. What does God want from us? He wants us to walk with Him. He wants us to have relationship with Him. This is what God has always wanted from us. Years ago, a 90-year-old lady made her way up the steps of Tidwell Tower at Baylor University in Waco. She had a couple of books in hand. She signed them, Mrs. Kyle Yates. And she gave me um, preaching through the prophets and preaching through the Psalms. I suppose they were my first commentaries. I was a freshman or a sophomore at Baylor, and I'd won a scholarship in the name of her husband, and she wanted me to have a couple of her husband's books. Her husband had pastored, as you know, here in Houston many years ago, I believe, at Second Baptist Church. He was the pastor, and she wanted me to have those books, and those books have been a great blessing to me through the years. In one of those books, in the book on the prophets about Micah, this is what her husband wrote. Communion with God develops character, and character issues forth in conduct. That's what Micah was saying. If you and I have a conduct problem, it's really an issue of character. And character is really a result of communion with God, relationship with God. Character is not about, I'm going to try harder to do better. It's, I'm going to walk in relationship and fellowship with God. And He's going to transform my character. And that's going to result in the right kind of conduct. So it's not you and I saying, we're going to try better to please God. And then He'll be happy enough with us that He'll say, well, you really did more good than bad, so I'll let you into my heaven. But instead, what God says is, I want you so to walk with me here in fellowship and communion that you are transformed, your character changes, and that will ultimately change the way that you live. God says, what I want is for you to walk with me. What would that look like if we walked with God? Well, see there with me in in chapter 6 where he sort of outlines it for us clearly and he says, "If if you were to walk with me, you would act justly. I love the King James Version. You would do justice because justice is something you do. It's more than an intention. It's an action that we take. And in all of their relationships, the people of God were failing to do justice. It was pervasive at every level of their culture, morally. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 describe their sort of false kind of worship. And as he describes it, he talks about the sovereign Lord and the mountains melting and the valleys splitting apart. And why all of this, verse 5, because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Now, that's one of the places of worship in the northern kingdom. What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? What he's saying is, you have mixed up your religion with the false morality of the world 
around you. In fact, as the message translate these verses, Eugene Peterson uses the expression sex and religion shrines because in that day they were intermingling their worship with a false kind of sexuality which resulted, as we see in verse 7, with prostitution and the wages of prostitution. And I noticed this week that in Women's Day magazine, do I have your attention I don't often read Women's Day magazine, but it was quoted in MSN, and this was the simple title of the article, Cheaters' Advice on Marriage. And then they went on in that article to quote people who had committed adultery, and they called them experts on marriage. Now, I have to tell you, I had to ponder that for a moment. I was just trying to find the right analogy, but if, if adultery qualified you as an expert on marriage, then I suppose a person who had multiple tickets and multiple accidents could be called a traffic safety expert. By saying that one who's committed adultery and made a mistake in that area is now somehow an expert would show you how morality in our culture has been distorted and warped and twisted. When you have human trafficking, Houston, Texas is one of the hubs. It's the dark sin of our day. Two million children a year are literally sold into slavery. Natalie Grant, the Christian singer, tells about going to India and they're walking down one of those dark streets in Mumbai. Think about the movie about India that came out a few years ago. And, and in that movie, there were pictures of sexual trafficking and human trafficking. And she saw five to seven-year-old girls with their faces looking out barred windows. They had been sold into that kind of slavery. That's the world we live in. It's not far afield from the sin that was taking place in Micah's day, not only morally, but also economically. Chapter 2 tells us they were cheating each other. They were defrauding each other of their inheritances. They were coveting fields and seizing them. The message says they see people only for what they can get out of them. Tell me that's not rampant in our day, that we look at people and say, what can they do for us? Is a person's net worth equal to his spiritual worth? What does, when we say, what does God want from us? We might ask the question, what do we honestly want from people? In the third area, spiritually, in chapter 2, verse 6, their spiritual leader said, stop preaching against sin. Chapter 3, verse 5, they're preaching for money. Politically, they stacked the deck against justice. So Micah asked the leaders, Shouldn't you know justice? Now listen to what Eugene Peterson does in his translation. He asks this question. Isn't justice in your job description? If you're a political leader, doesn't it make sense in the land of the free, in the home of the brave, in our country where freedom is celebrated, if you're a a political leader, wouldn't justice be in your job description, but they had missed that in ancient Israel. And Micah finally concludes in verse 8. He separates himself in chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right. He says, maybe the whole world is unjust, but our God is just. Our God is a just judge. How many television shows in recent years have they had with 
judges on them, judges of various gender and identity, all kinds of judges, and we are enamored of judges. It wasn't until yesterday that I realized that baseball has umpires and basketball and football have referees, but volleyball has judges. They stand on towers. They look down upon the play, and they are supreme in their rule. I'll tell you how supreme they are. While I was coaching volleyball yesterday, my wife was sitting in the stands with all the other parents, and, and uh, along, <laughs> along comes uh, one of the workers at that church um, and their gym, their recreation leader, and he said, let me just say a couple things to you. One is lock up your cars because people steal things. Imagine that in Houston. People steal things from cars. And he said, the second thing I want to say to you is don't mess with the judge. And he said, when you look at her, just understand this. She worked for decades for HPD in the gangs department. So let me just put this in clear terms for you. If you're thinking about questioning one of her calls, she used to break down doors and arrest the bad people. Do you really want to mess with this judge? It was in my initial conversation with her that I realized she was more like my Aunt Valta than anybody I have ever known in my life. And one thing I know about my Aunt Valta is no male in the Brooks family ever questioned Aunt Valta till she lived till last year into her 90s. Nobody ever opposed Aunt Valta because we knew there was no fury like Aunt Valta's fury. And I just sort of had that picture in mind. Whenever I wondered about one of the calls that the judge made, I thought, no, no, I'm not going to question that because the judge in volleyball, it turns out, is supreme. What Micah is saying to us is, even though we live in an unjust world, there is one who sees all clearly, who understands perfectly, and who judges with justice. But it's not all that he's saying. He goes on to say, this God has entrusted justice to his people. So Micah says, since the spirit of the Lord is upon me, I understand justice. And I know that God is the God who sets the wrong things right. But he has also empowered us as his people to set things right, as N.T. Wright would say. So justice is something we do act justly, do justice. It requires action on our part. It's not enough to feel like there ought to be justice in the world. We have to do justice. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet, wrote, the just man justices. That means justice will not wait. Gary Haugen illustrates this perfectly. This founder of the International Justice Mission was working for the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. when he felt God calling him to go and start the International Justice Mission, uh, IJM, to fight against human trafficking. And he built up his courage to go and ask his bosses. He knew that God was calling him to leave his job and to go and actually work for justice in the world, to leave behind the Justice Department to go and actually do justice by rescuing young people from human trafficking. And when he walked into his boss's office, he had a failure of nerve. And instead of asking them if he could leave, he said, could I have a year-long leave of absence? He was leaving himself some wiggle room in case the organization didn't work out, but they politely declined. And it was then that he realized, if I am going to work for justice 
I will have to act upon this summarily. I will have to leave behind the security of my job and my career and the money that they pay me so that I can start an organization because what God has called me to do is more important than my own sense of financial security. Can I ask you tonight, how has God asked you and me to do justice in this world? And what are we doing about it? The reason we believe in justice, as N.T. Wright says, is because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live with the dream of justice. And followers of Christ believe that in Jesus that voice became human. And he did what had to be done to bring it about. Think about Jesus who set things right. Where there was illness, he brought healing. Where there was demonic possession, he brought deliverance. Where there was sin, he confronted it. But everywhere he went, he set things right. You want to walk with God? You want, like Micah, to be conformed to the image of God, one who is like God, well then, do justice. Secondly, he says, we are to love mercy. Mercy here is a wonderful word. Maybe your translation says loving kindness. It's, um, it's uh, steadfast faithfulness is another translation. The Hebrew word is chesed. You almost, you almost have to clear your throat to say chesed. It's an unusual word, but it speaks of unconditional love. It's the word in the Old Testament that shows us the very character and heart of God. You want to see it clearly? Look at the end of Micah, chapter 7, in this marvelous description of God in verses 18 and 20. Listen to what he says. Who is a God like you who pardons sin, forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is our God, a God who is not only just, but who is also, let us give thanks, merciful. And he says we are to love mercy. Another translation says delight in mercy. Look, I know we love mercy because we love to receive mercy. And that's well. I'm not faulting you on that, on that count because I love to receive mercy too. I love to receive mercy. But I think we will understand what it means to love mercy when we not only love to receive it, but we also love to give it. It's not enough just to pray the Jesus prayer, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not enough just to sing, mercy drops around us are falling, but for the showers we plead. We love to receive mercy, but do we love to give mercy? And the longer we walk in the communion of a merciful God, the more His character will become our character, His conduct our conduct. I'm not an art student, though I did in one week, one time, visit both the Louvre and the Prado. And I became very cultured in one week's time. I learned a great deal. Maybe you know, you artists surely know about pentimento. It's not something you put on a sandwich. It's not a car It's a term that artists use where if you paint over one color with a new color, the older color may seep through. It's called pentimento. And when we spend enough time with God, His mercy seeps 
through us. I've known tough people who after they became Christians had their hearts become tender just because God shined through them with his mercy. They not only love to receive his mercy, but they come, came to love to give mercy as well. It's why Shakespeare wrote, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. Mercy blesses him that gives and him that takes. It's mightiest and the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of his temporal power, the, the attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It's enthroned in the hearts of kings because it's an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show like God's when mercy seasons justice. You want to see it? You want to see mercy in our world? I was on the internet. I think it was a day after I was reading Women's Day. And there was an article that said, HIV adoptions are on the rise. And it told the story of families in our country who are adopting children who are HIV positive. Now that's mercy. When we love the last and the lost and the least, when our hearts are broken by the things that break the heart of God, when we can see somebody suffering, and unlike Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9, instead of saying, I wonder who sinned that caused that suffering, was it their parents or them? Instead of seeing some, um, some sinister sin behind that person's pain, instead feeling the whip as it is laid on their back, when we have our hearts broken, what, what, by what breaks the heart of God, then we will become people who love mercy. And just like justice, mercy results in action. I love the expression, when all is said and done, more is said than done. And it's easy for us to talk about loving mercy, but it's another thing to become merciful people. You'll know how merciful you are the next time somebody treats you wrong and you have every right. You've got them in the palm of your hand. You have every right to take revenge on them, but instead you remember vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and you offer forgiveness to that person and you show love and kindness to them even though they have wronged you then you will become. What did Jesus say? Look, everybody loves their friends. But Jesus said, I want you to love your enemies and then you will be children of your heavenly Father. And he concludes that section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 48, by saying, be perfect. Not um, sinless, though that is God's goal for us, but be complete as your Father in heaven is complete. And his example is, when you forgive the people who have wronged you. Where do we see it? We see it in Jesus. Again, on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to do justice. It means to love mercy. It means to live with resident humility. Some of my favorite memories of our lives are teaching our children to walk. I remember sitting on the floor of our parsonage outside Waco and, and holding the fingers of our, our children as they were learning to walk. And again, when we lived in Austin, and I've noticed about walking that it's harder to learn to walk with God than it is to learn to walk 
Almost all of us, though I was a late bloomer in that regard. My mother says 17 months old, which I'm not proud of, but um, I've tried to make up for it with all the running, though I'm not sure it's worked out. But, but all of us at some point, um, by God's grace, if we're physically able, learn to walk. But the question is, will we learn to walk with God? And the great enemy of walking with God, we see it there in verse 8, the great enemy of walking with God is our pride. Our pride will stand in our way. Um, somebody has called it the Lake Wobegon effect. You remember all the children in Lake Wobegon are above average. Here's some good news. If you're like most people, you are way above average at almost everything. Psychologists call this the state of illusory superiority. It's the illusion of our superiority. Listen to what the surveys say. Um, that we inflate our positive qualities and attributes, especially in comparison to other people. Listen to these studies. For instance, when researchers asked a million high school students how well they got along with their peers, not one of them rated themselves below average. As a matter of fact, 60% 60 of the students believed they were in the top 10% of relating to their fellow students. 25% said they were in the top 1%. You'd think college professors might have more self-insight, but they were just as uh, biased about their abilities. 2% of college professors rated themselves below average, 10% were average, and 63% were above average, while 25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. Of course, this is statistically impossible. 60% can't be in the top 10%, nor can 25% be in the top 1%. It's statistically impossible. It's the great contradiction. The average person believes he is a better person than the average person, Mark McMinn writes. One of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that we are proud. Shocking, isn't it? We are proud. We assume the worst in others while we paint our own faults in faint black and white, he wrote. Bill White tells about it in a, an encounter he had with a, a man, a 45-minute drive in an old beat-up van with a guy I barely know. This is another Bill White, not our Bill White, though there are many Bill Whites I learned, and many of them are famous, but perhaps not as famous as our Bill White. Anyway, this Bill White was taking a ride in a van with a man, and he was trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him, and the man just finally came out and said it. My biggest problem with becoming a Christian is pride, he said. I can't humble myself. And you want to know the reason I can't give up my pride? Listen to his answer. You want to know the reason I can't give up my pride, he said? Because it's taken me so far. My pride has taken me so far. How far will pride take you? Far afield. Far away from God's plan for your life. Pride is a problem, a problem that will keep us from walking with God. But if we would learn humility, if we would learn to see ourselves from God's perspective, it would draw us closer to God. The scriptures say, um, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. How badly does God want to walk with us when we would not humble ourselves 
While we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. He showed us the way by humbling himself and walking among us. As Philippians chapter 2 tells us, there's a sequence there of seven voluntary demotions. Who takes demotions? Jesus took seven of them. Never was a man more humble than Jesus who went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter without opening his mouth, though he could have called legions of angels to come to his aid. He chose instead to die willingly. This is humility. He walked with God. He walked down to us so that we might walk with God here and forever. But we can only receive His gift of life through childlike faith. We will have to humble ourselves to say we cannot save ourselves, but only Christ can save us. Some years ago, I went with my father up to his hometown, the teeming metropolis of Brushy Knob, Missouri, We hunted together there on the land that he grew up on where his grandfather farmed 700 acres there. One morning we woke up early and we walked together. We walked through the briars and the brambles where a rabbit couldn't go, to quote the country and western song. And every once in a while, we would stop and rest. And we talked along the way, but mostly that day, we just walked. And as we walked together, we didn't have to talk. I mean, I started that day hoping I would find the giant white-tailed deer on top of the mountain. But as I discovered, as I walked with him that day, that walking with him was more fun than the hunting. And ultimately, that's what God wants. Can anybody else here tonight confess that we're so busy trying to do something for God that we've forgotten that he wants us to do something with God? He wants us to walk with Him. And if we learn to walk in humility before the Lord, we will walk with Him here and forever and ever. And we will, we will say what we sang tonight. And He walks with me. And He talks with me. And He tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Let His communion change your character and watch the way he changes your conduct as we walk with him would you pray with me father thank you for the privilege of walking with you today it's by your grace lord given our own given our own strength and ambition lord we would surely walk away from you so tonight lord i pray that we would hear the echoes of the voice of the prophet micah as he says This is what God requires, that you walk humbly with your God. God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.